Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of the Potter's House in Virginia Beach. church with a worldwide vision for winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. We're a Pentecostal church affiliated with the Christian Fellowship Ministries. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. A good revival in the last week. Man, Pastor Graham, uh, he is no nonsense. He's no frills. But I tell you, he delivered some incredible messages. I'm so grateful for that ministry. Um, and that's why I had him come again. I believe he, he did a great job for us, didn't he? And God really used him in a powerful way. Thank you, Dave. Uh, we also, if you, uh, I think everybody was here this morning. Um, so last Sunday, we had 52 people in attendance. That was last Sunday when we started the revival. That was our largest attendance of the year, which is fantastic. Uh, but today, after revival had finished, anybody want to take a guess what our attendance was today? It was 51. Only by one. So that's fantastic news. Uh, so that means that uh, we can continue. So when we have a, a more intimate service like what we have tonight, I just want to encourage you, it does not mean that God's not moving. It means uh, that there is demonic attacks taking place. I'm always amazed what's happening behind the scenes as people not able to make it into the service for whatever reason but many times those are coordinated attacks you know that that the reason that we have an empty service is simply because hell doesn't like the victories that we've been having and so he will discourage people he'll put roadblocks in the way he'll cause uh people to lose their jobs so that somebody else has to cover and then you know there's all this stuff that's happening behind the scenes spiritual warfare all so that you might feel discouraged when you look around and see an empty service. So don't, be, don't let the devil stomp on your feelings like that, because we know God is still on the throne tonight. And so this evening, we want to open up our Bibles to uh, the book of Revelation once again. And uh, again, as we continue this study, uh, we're going to make it open for a discussion. If you have questions or comments along the way tonight. I would love to hear those questions or comments. I don't know everything. Uh, and so if I don't know the answer, I will tell you that. And I'll say, let's study that together. And maybe next week I can come back with an answer. But tonight we want to look again into the book of Revelation. We uh, finished our last study looking at chapters uh, 13 and 14. We saw the beast of the sea, the uh, these were some uh, these were some signs that appeared in heaven, starting in chapter 12, if you'll remember, uh, that we were going to see a series of signs in heaven. So when the Bible says that we were going to see signs in heaven, uh, what does that mean exactly? Anybody want to take a, take a glance or take a, a swing at that? In Revelation, starting with chapter 12, and then we also looked at chapters 13 and 14. And John, as he is explaining that, says that a great sign appeared in heaven. 
I'm asking, is that something that we should take literally? Or is that something that we sh- uh, believe is literally going to happen? What are these signs intended to be from the Word of God? Anybody? Anybody? Mm-hmm. What are they intended to do? Okay. Okay, the first sign is there was a lady. Uh-huh. She had her foot. She was clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and her head of a garland of 12 stars, and she was going to have a baby. Okay, so uh, the question is, is that a real lady who is standing in the sky, ready to have a baby? No, then what is it, what, what is it then? Yes, Marquita. Um, I believe the, the, the new birth of Jesus Christ. Very good, yes. So these signs that we saw through chapters 12, 13, and 14, these are intended to be symbolic. They're intended to teach us something. And uh, in the example of that woman, uh, the woman who gave birth to a son, if we said that the son was who? Jesus. So that means the woman is who? Well, not exactly. Not exactly Mary. Bigger. Symbolically, she stands for Israel. Israel is the one who gave birth to Messiah, right? And, uh, and who is the dragon, the fiery red dragon, seven heads and ten horns? Satan, the enemy of our souls, who stood before the woman and ready to devour the child. Isn't it interesting how, uh, how the, the devil moves upon the, the hearts of leaders like King Herod? Uh, in those times, and uh, King Herod knew that of these prophecies. He knew that there was a messianic uh, prophecy, and so he decides that during his time, uh, he's going to go ahead and try to wipe out uh, Jesus before he can get a chance to live. And so exactly what this symbol shows us is what happened. So uh, Israel gives birth to Jesus. Satan tries to devour him early on in his life. Uh, That doesn't happen. Her child was caught up to God. What does that mean? Yeah, he was was, uh, uh, ascended into heaven. And uh, so on and on we go. So we saw the different uh, signs. We're going to look at, um, in in our scripture tonight, we're going to see another sign, starting with chapter... 15. And so we're going to read this together. Um, can I get a volunteer to read verses 1 and 2? Go ahead. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues for them in the wrath of God is complete. In verse 2. When I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Okay, so let's remember again where we're at in the grand scheme of how things are playing out in the last days according to the book of Revelation. Before chapter 12, does anybody remember what was taking place uh, from starting in verse 
uh, starting in chapter, uh, we had, we had uh, chapter 8, which started the seven trumpets, right? We read the seven trumpets. These were judgments being announced each time as they go. Then in verse 10, we have, uh, we have some sy- symbology and some metaphors going on. We have the two witnesses. We have the witnesses killed. And then the seventh trumpet, remember, the seventh trumpet is, uh, is the announcement that Jesus Christ is coming to bring judgment to the earth, right? So we've had, we have seven trumpets. We had seven of something else in the book of Revelation. What was that? Before the seven trumpets, there was seven seals. That's right. Seals that were sealing up the scroll. Uh, before the scroll, there was also seven of something else. Yes? The candlesticks, which is symbolic of the churches. Very good. Okay, so seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets. And now we're coming into chapters 15 and 16 where we have seven bowls, seven angels, who are pouring out seven bowls, and all these bowls, again, are God's judgment. Now, there's a difference between the seven bowls and the seven uh, trumpets versus the seven seals. And uh, let me just give you the hint of what these seven bowls, why they are different than the others. Do you remember as we were reading about the seven seals, and the seven trumpets as God's judgment was being poured out on the earth. Do you remember how it spoke about one-fourth of the world and one-third of the world and one-third of the population and how these different judgments were only affecting a portion of the earth? Do you remember that? So as we're reading through, I want you to just notice that in these seven bowls of God's judgment that there are no fractions involved. Some of you math haters are happy about that. No fractions involved in these judgments. And it means that these are the final judgments. And that's what we read very first in this very first scripture, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. In them, these last seven plagues, in them the wrath of God is complete. Okay, so I want you to understand that God has wrath. What is wrath? Marquita? Wrath, I believe, meaning there's going to be some kind of arguing, fighting going on, like violence. Yep. Wrath means anger, right? So what is God angry about? What is his wrath directed at? Somebody tell me. Even today, God is angry about something. What is that? The last seven plagues that the angels have, maybe. God's angry at the angels? Noel, help him out. amount of sin that's still going on in the world even after those have been caught up and those are still left behind yep so god is angry at sin 
Did you know that sin makes God angry? In the same way, when somebody sins against you, somebody lies to your face, how does that make you feel? Mm. Angry, doesn't it? When somebody does wrong, when somebody uh, kills someone, when there's murder, when there's uh, uh, all kinds of crime that happens around us, the natural reaction to sin is anger, or it should be. The only time that we don't get angry at sin is when we are doing it. And when we sin, somehow we're able to uh, justify ourselves. But uh, I want to tell you that sin makes God angry. And this is what you should keep in the back of your mind as you're reading about the bowls of judgment. God's wrath is being completed in these two chapters, 15 and 16. It is God's plan to rid the world of sin. Now, there's a problem with that. I wish that I could wave a magic wand and remove sin from the world. Do you know why we can't do that? Because sin is not just some idea that's floating around in the clouds. Sin is something that is committed by human beings. And there's a whole lot of human beings that refuse to part ways from their sins. Okay? Now, hopefully, if you're here tonight, you're right with God. That means that you are willing to repent of your sin. It means that you're willing to confess and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I want you to forgive me. What that is, is you making a decision to separate yourself from sin because then your sin can be paid for on the cross. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus at the cross. That's the glory of salvation. And you and I can continue, we can become God's servants, God's children, and ultimately we can become his rulers on the earth. So the sin issue, we can deal with it by separating ourselves from sin. Everybody with me so far? The problem is there's still people on the earth that are sinners. Our job as the church for the last 2,000 years has been to call sinners to repentance. The Holy Spirit draws men. The church is called to be an Ananias and a Barnabas, like we spoke about this morning, the Apostle Paul going out into all the world preaching this good news that God can deliver us from our sins. But how many know? Some people don't want to hear the gospel. I think Kanye is going to discover this very soon. That if he truly is faithful to be a minister of the gospel, that some of his buddies in Hollywood and in California and in, uh, you know, people that he's used to running with, that they're not going to like him anymore. There is a polarizing effect for people who get saved, right? You probably remember it. When you first got saved, when you got serious about living for God, not everybody likes that. Do you know who doesn't like it? Sinners. And Satan, obviously. But there are people who do not agree. Right. And so it is one thing to say, I wish that the world could be free from all sin. But I hope you realize what that means. You are also saying, I wish that the world could be free from all sinners. And some people don't want to repent. And so if we are going to rid the world of sin, this is the only way that it can happen. 
as God pours out his judgment on the earth. So let's look at uh, who is here in this uh, prelude to God pouring out his judgments. So we have seven angels. Uh, We have a sea of glass mingled with fire. There's some interesting symbology here. So the sea of glass, this is verse 2, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Who is represented by this sea of glass mingled with fire? It just told us, if you were paying attention. Who is this group of people That looks like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Dave. Uh, Believers who have died and are already in heaven. It's the saints. That's right. It is the heavenly host. It is the innumerable, uncountable, well, I guess God will know the number, uh, of how many are there. And these are people who are on God's side, right? It says that they have the victory over the beast, over his image. And over his mark. So the Bible says something interesting. That they all have harps. If you want to get ready for heaven, might be a good idea to pick up a harp. Learn how to play it. Because we will all have harps on this day of musical instruments. What is the purpose of the harps? Why will we have harps? Why will the people of God have harps in their hand? Dave? Uh, It says next that they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So, yes, this is a worship service that is taking place right before God pours out his judgment on the earth. It is time to sing a song. Verse 3 says they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. This is very interesting to me. The song that we are about to sing in this moment is a song that has two producers, two authors. It's the song of Moses, but it's also the song of the Lamb. Now, right there, we have some amazing truth. They they have prepared this song for this moment for all of God's people to sing. But who wrote the song? It was a cooperative event that Moses and Jesus co-produced the album and they went in together on this artistic event to write a song of worship. There is a truth here. Listen, guys. God makes a big deal out of cooperation with mankind. Because you say to yourself, well, who's Moses? Moses is just a guy, right? I mean, a very special guy chosen by God for a very special purpose in his time. But he's just a guy like you and me with the same failures and faults, right? But here's God who is organizing the worship service before the final judgment is poured out on the earth. And he says, Moses, I need your help. I need your help to put this together. Do you think Jesus was capable to write a song on his own? Far more than capable, right? But he didn't do that. He asked for cooperation. Can I just remind you tonight that Jesus 
is continually asking for your help. He is asking for your cooperation. That everything that happens in the church, ultimately, that's what it is. Or that's what it should be. If we are stepping out in our own strength, we know it's going to fail. And God, he chooses to, to, uh, to wait until he has someone to cooperate with. It's amazing to think about the song of Moses and the Lamb. Can I have somebody find another scripture for me? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Anybody? Noel, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 3 and 4. So this describes another song, Song of Moses. And we're going to see the similarities between that song and the song we're about to read. Got it? Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 and 4. Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Is that it? Okay, now compare that to the song that the heavenly hosts are singing in this moment. Verse 3 again, Revelation 15, great and marvelous are your works. Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Interesting that there are similarities between these two songs. And so what, we, what we're seeing here is that uh, the song of Moses in Deuteronomy is, uh, is reflected now in this song at the end of the time. So it's a beautiful promise of what is about to happen. Consider for just a moment that also when Jesus came and was transfigured on top of the mountain, who did he speak with? He spoke with Moses and Elijah. Again, a cooperation. What are we going to do, guys? Jesus didn't need to consult with anybody, and yet he chose to meet with these two uh, on the top of the mountain. All right, so then let's continue. Verse 5, chapter 15. After these things, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, having their chests girded with golden bands. And one of the four living creatures... Well, before we read that, where... Where have you heard about golden bands before? Anybody remember? Pure bright linens and golden bands. Yes? Wasn't that the apparel of the saints of God? Close. Okay. You're on the right track, but not quite. Got it? Go ahead. The martyrs? No, 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 not the martyrs. I'm wrong. Anybody else want to guess? <laughs> there was also a description of Jesus in almost exactly the same terms, and I'm trying to find where it was. 
113. So you had it, you just didn't want to share. Is that what it was? <laughs> okay, there it is. Yep, Revelation 113. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. So there's some hierarchy happening in heaven, that angels, just like in the military, you have different uniforms for different purposes, right? And so uh, here are seven angels who are clothed with the same clothes that Jesus had. That sounds pretty important. And so these angels clothed in the same golden band, they are tasked with pouring out the judgments of God on the earth. That sounds pretty serious. Okay. Uh, The golden bowls, this is verse 7, one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Chapter 16, verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of wrath of God on the earth. Seven bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Let's talk a moment about judging sin. So we are living in a world today, maybe you've heard somebody say to you, Only God can judge me. Have you heard somebody say that before? And, you know, there's a, a part of that that's, that's true, and that's why it rings true with so many people. But, but what they're really saying is this. God is the one who judges, so you need to shut up. Right? You don't need to tell me about my life because God is the one who judges me. And so people, uh, there is an averse reaction to the idea of judgment in my culture. Don't be judging me. Right? I want to tell you, um, I think it's far better for us to judge our fellow man rather than allow time until God brings his judgment. You know why I say that? Because God's judgment is a lot harsher than any judgment we can receive on the earth. Right? And it's true. Only God can bring the ultimate judgment. But that's why we are called to have discernment in this life. This is why we correct our children when they misbehave. It's better for us to correct them when they're young and when they're still correctable than for the police officer to correct them in 20 years. Right? Now, if a child looks up at you and says, only the police can judge me, well, there's an element of that that's true. But it's much better for parents to correct children so that later the police and the prison system don't have to. In the same way, listen, it's better for us to, uh, to judge one another. And remember, when Jesus spoke about judgment, what he was saying is, judge not lest ye be judged. With the same judgment you use, so also that judgment will be applied to you. And so it didn't say, never judge people. It said, be careful with your judgments, because the same way that you give judgments to others will be the same way the judgment is applied to your life. That's a warning against hypocrisy, isn't it? 
So the reason I mention that here is because there's people who have a problem with God's judgment. People can struggle with this concept. Judgment has been seen in a negative way. But see, God, what God is doing here is the right thing. He is bringing ultimate judgment against sin, against evil. And so this is what we're going to see here in these seven bowls that are poured out by the seven angels. Let's look at the first one. Who's going to volunteer to read that tonight? This is Revelation 16, verse 2. Ramon. Revelation 16, verse 2. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth. And there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. All right, so if you need a reason why you should not take the mark of the beast, here's reason number one. Because the first bowl is about sores. Sores who came upon men. In my translation, it says a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men. That sounds pretty terrible. Now, again, remember, this is not one-third of the earth. This is not a quarter or half of the earth. This is upon all the men who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Now, that's important because just like in the days of uh, the the deliverance out of Egypt, that those plagues only applied to the people who did not put the blood over the doorpost, right? It did not apply to the Jews of the time. It only fell upon the Egyptians. It only fell upon those who were rebelling against God. So in the same way, here's loathsome sores that come upon the men who had the mark of the beast. Second bowl of judgment. This is uh, chapter 16, verse 3. Who's going to read that for us? Taya. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. That sounds pretty horrible. And so this speaks again. We had this uh, similar um, uh, change in back in the trumpet judgments. That's the salt water first was changed. And then the fresh water. So, but this, this is, again, this is not a third of the earth. This is not a quarter of the earth. This is not half of the earth. This is all salt water on the earth turns to blood like a dead man. Uh, so, there are no fish, no whales, no sharks that can survive the salt waters of the earth being turned to blood. So, all of the seas died. And right there is the food source for most of the world, right? Okay, then we have verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Okay, so we had uh, the seas of the earth, all the salt water turns to blood, and now we have all the fresh water, every lake, river, and stream. So let me ask you this question. How long would the earth survive without water? If all the water turns to blood, a few days, right? Two days, three days, all the reserves will be tapped uh, in just a, a few days' time. And
And uh, here's the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be. Because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Tell me what that means. Why is the blood connected to the martyred saints? Somebody make sense of that tonight. Is it their blood? Mm, not exactly. But God chose this judgment on purpose. But he want to explain it to us tonight. Why does God choose to change the waters of the world into blood? Yes. Well, blood is significant with death. Yep. And the bad people of the world killed the Christians, the godly people, and so they didn't pay any attention to the blood that they shed, but now they're drinking it pretty much. Absolutely. So this goes all the way back to, uh, to the second generation of human beings. Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel, and we know that righteous Abel made a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. And Cain also made a sacrifice, but it was unacceptable. Cain got angry about that. And Cain rose up and did what? He killed his brother Abel. And the Bible speaks about the righteous blood of Abel that calls out to God from the ground. I believe that's in Hebrews. And ever since then, righteous blood has been spilled on the ground. And it seems like, for all these thousands of years, like there is not a just punishment for that. Let's fast forward to all of the, the, uh, the uh, prophets who lost their lives, speaking for God. How many times God said, I sent you prophets, I sent you men of God, I sent you great men to speak my words. But what did you do? You stopped your ears and you killed them and their blood was spilled on the ground. Ultimately, God sends his own son to the earth, doesn't he? His son filled with life and passion and purpose, healing the sick, delivering the best sermons that have ever been preached. And he came to bring life to the world. And what happened to Jesus? His blood spilled out on the ground. All of it. And ever since then, Christians, martyrs, have been experiencing the same, starting with Stephen, going through all all of the, the New Testament records, almost Uh, Every single disciple that followed Jesus, the same happened. They became martyrs, with the exception of John, who is the author of Revelation. And for these 2,000 years, and even today, there are martyrs whose blood is being spilled. And it almost seems like there's not a righteous response from God. But I want to tell you, there's hope here because... The way that God brings judgment on the earth is by making them drink the blood of those righteous who have spilled their blood. It reminds me of when the children of Israel were out there in the wilderness and how they, oh, how they wanted to eat the meat of Egypt. Do you remember that? Oh, remember how we used to eat the meat back in Egypt when we were slaves? And God says, okay, you want meat? I'll give you meat. I'll give you more meat than you ever wanted. And the Bible says that he sent uh, these birds, these quail, 
And he sent so many of them that they were up to their waist, squirming around. Could you imagine the filth? God says, okay, if that's what you want, that's what you'll get. Yes. I just have a comment about the Egypt meat and beef. <laughs> yes. I just saw a documentary on Egypt and the building of the pyramids and all this. And, you know, I, I always am boggled why the Jews wanted to go back to Egypt and they missed it so mm -hmm. much. Well, they said that in order for the, the, these pyramids and the great, great things to be built, they had to really team up with the laborers. Mm -hmm. And so there was, it wasn't so much um, slavery with whipping and, you know, all that. It was more like you are the elite workers for the Pharaoh, and they fed them. They, they found bones and done excavations and found out what they were eating and all that. And basically their diet was a rich grain and beef. Mm -hmm. So they were, they were slaughtering their best beef for their workers. Okay. So they would do good work to build those buildings, which now I thought was fascinating. Yeah, which uh, we don't want to get too far off on a tangent, but um, the, uh, the idea of the 400 years of slavery is not that they were forced into it, but that they, uh, they wanted to become slaves. And you say, why would anybody want to become slaves? Well, we are seeing it happen again in 2019. Have you seen the calls for socialism in our country today? We just want more and more from the government. We want better health care. We want our school loans to be paid off. We want the riches of Egypt. We will just give everything that we have to the government. We'll go ahead, tax the rich, tax us all. Take all of our tax money so that we can be uh, children of the government. They, they chose slavery. Dave. Interestingly enough, the word Egypt actually means constraint, like a straitjacket. Yeah. Well, that's what big government does. So, uh, so this, this uh, water turning to blood is God's final judgment to make what was right all of that blood that was spilled of the saints and prophets. So then we go to the fourth bowl. Oh, this, it's getting ugly, y'all. <laughs> all right, somebody want to volunteer to read this terrible thing that takes place next? Dave. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. So if, uh, if there is any way to die, this would be the worst way, right? The death of being uh, burned to death. I, you, you can't even imagine the scorching pain. I mean, just... Uh, just going out in the sun for 15 minutes is uncomfortable for me. You know what I'm saying? Just when you, you know, uh, just the other day we were cooking something in our little toaster oven, and I touched just that, that little bar that's inside that's 300 degrees and burned my little finger. Man, just that by itself, ah, terrible. I whined in my own mind for hours after that. I could not even imagine. I mean, some of the worst pain that you could ever experience, go to a burn unit in a hospital. Can you imagine? People's layers of skin having been removed 
And, you know, if you get, if you get second and third degree burns all over your body, it will kill you. It will kill you. I mean, it's like being cooked alive. You, you put a chicken in the oven and watch it. That is not exactly what I want to happen to me. So, I mean, if you had a way to choose how to die, that's like bottom of the list in my mind. Yes. Well, that reminds me of, I was around when Mount St. Helens blew and I was up there. And s- there was several people that were burned. They did not live through it. But they were burned so deeply that the muscles on their chest were cooked. Mm. And so it was, it, and I'm in, I was a nurse, so in the medical community, they were talking about, we've never treated burns this deep mm. before. Because that's much further than a third degree burn. Yeah. So anyway, it's interesting. Uh, yeah. So th- this is what this fourth bowl is all about, unfortunately. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the power was given to him to scorch men with fire. Terrible. Terrible, but what's interesting is we see the reason why this is justified. It says that the men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God. Their response was, curse you, God. Curse you in all your power over us. And so I just want to remind you what happens, right, to those, ultimately, what happens to those who... Uh, shake their fist in God's face, uh, that's not a fight you want to get into because God will win the battle. So, the fifth bowl. Who wants to read that? Verses 10 and 11. Noel? And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues for pain. Ooh. And 11, again. And blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. Okay, so in this fifth bowl, this turns into a judgment against the nation or the government that has been set up by the beast, the, the Antichrist. So now the judgment is turning to the political system that is on the earth. And uh, as this bowl is being poured out, it says that the kingdom became filled with darkness. I don't know all that that means, but somehow this is very painful. So if the scorching sun doesn't get you, the, the pain of this darkness is even worse. So the sixth bowl, listen, it, gets, it does get better, I promise. It's, it's not all uh, terrible here. But let's, yes, Dave. I was just thinking, um, you know, when, when it gets really cold outside, if you, like, scrape your finger, it's amplified greatly. Mm. So so, um, so in one bowl judgment, they get scorched with heat, and then right after that, it's like all the heat is removed, and they're probably freezing. Mm-hmm. All their joints and everything hurt really bad. Sounds lovely. Verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. This gets interesting. 
For they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Now here is where we are gearing up now for the final battle. So the Bible says that there are spirits that come like frogs out of the mouth of the dragon. These are demonic spirits. And where does it say that these spirits are going to? Out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. And where are they going to? These demonic spirits. Who are they going to? Help me out. Dave? To the kings of the earth. To the kings of the earth. Why? What is the purpose? Why are they going to go speak to all the kings of the earth? The last battle. So he is inspiring. The Antichrist now is gaining support from the rest of the nations of the earth. He is gaining support to go to this final battle. Anybody know where this final battle is going to take place? The Valley of Megiddo, which is just outside of Jerusalem. There's a great valley that is there. And the Bible speaks about this valley. So now with all of these judgments that are being poured out on the world and all of these wicked men who have taken the mark of the beast, there is anger. There is rage that is stirred up. And the Antichrist in one final push goes and sends out his demonic message into the kings of the earth to inspire them, to raise up an army and send them into battle. All right? This is why Jesus breaks through the noise in this moment. In my Bible, there's one verse here that has red ink. And this is what Jesus says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. So Jesus issues a warning to these kings. He says, I'm coming quickly. And verse 16 says that they gathered them together in the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. If you want to know where the word Armageddon started, that's, that's a biblical language. That's the, 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 the location of where this final battle will take place. It's the, the Valley of Megiddo. Many important military battles have been fought there. But none of them will compare to this final battle, which is going to take place. Dave, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that um, that more battles have taken place in that valley than anywhere else on the earth in history. Yeah, I believe it. Uh, but what's interesting about this final battle is that it's not much of a battle at all, because only one side is going to win. <laughs> this war is going to be over quicker than when it than it begins. Um, so here they are. The, the enemy has sent out this message. He's gathering his forces in this valley of Megiddo. Then here we are in the end of chapter 16, beginning with verse 17, where we read about the final, seventh and final bowl of judgment that is poured out by these angels. Who wants to read uh, verses 17 through 20? Uh, 17 through 20. And we'll save the, the last one. 17 through 20. Who can read that for me? Noel. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, 
And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men... Okay, stop for just a minute. Um, so this is the seventh bowl being poured out, and it says that is a great shaking, a great earthquake like the world has never seen. So uh, have you ever experienced an earthquake? <laughs> Californians. Dave, can you describe an earthquake that, that you felt? Or? Well, 1994 in Northridge. Um, they say it was supposed to, it was like a 6.7, 6.8, but other reports came in later saying it was like a 7.2. It was, they always happen at 3 o'clock in the morning for some <laughs> reason. And um, basically what it sounded like was, uh, it sounded like somebody... Um, hooked up a freight train to our house and just started it up so it's it starts like real slow and so that's what that is is the plates under the earth skidding against, skidding each, against right. each other and, and so next thing you know I mean just everything is shaking you know mirrors and pictures and everything is shaking like this and um, and so uh, right away you know okay this is an earthquake so um, and so you jump out of bed both my bedroom windows which were right next to my bed they shattered like right away just boom boom wow. and then and then my dresser which was like a huge oak dresser that jumped up off the ground hit the wall and then flew this way <laughs> and and um for some reason they tell you to get into doorways because doorways magically stand through earthquakes well that's a myth that actually came from when um when houses made of adobe they would make brick doorways and so after an earthquake the only thing still standing was the brick doorway but in modern houses they're just wood so so the doorways come down with everything else but but um ev i mean it it went on for probably a minute or longer just just it just sounded like it sounded like you were sitting under a freight train just <laughs> you know and um and and finally it Finally, it stops after probably a minute. You know, you're, you, and all you hear is car alarms. I mean, and just you, you hear car alarms and you hear people screaming mm. when it finally, you know, when when it finally stops, and then it hits you. Okay, that was the first one. There's aftershocks coming, and some of the aftershocks you you have no idea when they're coming. Mm. Like you didn't know when the first one was coming either, but the aftershocks might come within a minute. They might come within an hour. They might not come until the next day. And some of them are almost as powerful as the original. And that happened over and over again. Mm. And, um, and we were, uh, it, it was, it happened, you know, at 3 o'clock in the morning. So all of a sudden you could smell gas. You could smell natural gas because everybody has gas pipes. stoves. And, you know, so pipes, water mains were broken. All the power was out. Um, we didn't get power back for a week. Uh, and um, And so supplies started going quick it was 
It was basically hell on earth. It was mm. terrible. <laughs> and that was in Northridge, California, 1994. Yeah, that that Noel said she slept through it. <laughs> yeah, not surprised. <laughs> I, well, I I was well, my house was Five miles from the epicenter, so wow. and we had a, a mall that was like um, uh, MacArthur Center. How yeah. it's like three level. We had a mall called the Northridge Mall, and that was just leveled. It was just Seriously. rubble. Yeah. Wow. So uh, and and just just consider that that was in the best of circumstances. That's in a first world nation, and consider what happened to like Haiti. On and that was a weaker earthquake that hit Haiti and basically destroyed the entire nation. Right. Okay, now imagine an earthquake that was a seven point something. So uh, let's magnify that by a thousand, and it's worldwide. And every major capital of every city will be shaken. So we're talking about millions of people, right? In an instant. And. It's the greatest earthquake of human history. It's going to destroy whatever is left of human infrastructure. Skyscrapers will come tumbling down. Right? Everything. Well, anything that, that is left on the earth at this time, all it, it, it's going to make the people who survive even more angry at God. All they're going to do is blaspheme God. God, we hate you. Because of all this evil that you've done to us. And it's, that's why they will fight against God in the Valley of Armageddon. Because they're going to see all of this tragedy taking place around them. And they're going to point their finger at God and say, we hate you. And if all that wasn't enough, I saved the, the best for last. Look at verse 21. And great hail from heaven fell upon men. And each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Do you know how much a talent is? A talent is about 2,000 pounds. We're talking about hail the size of Volkswagen Beetles. The biggest hail that's ever been recorded in human history is about 6 to 8 inches. Hailstones like cannonballs raining from the sky. Could you imagine hailstones this size raining on your house? Now imagine hailstones the size of a Volkswagen, eight feet wide. That's what 2,000-pound hailstone looks like. (laughs) It is going to pulverize the world. And men, look at this last line, men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. And so if you think, you know, the, um, the, the disaster movies that were so popular several years ago, you know, where the world is uh, destroyed by a flood or destroyed by a big wave or destroyed by, you know, for a while there, there was only, uh, only natural disaster movies that were coming out for like two or three years in a row. Or it was a big meteor that fell or, you know, it was Bruce Willis, the only one who could save us from the big meteorite. And uh, uh, so all of that, all of that is really nothing compared to what is actually going to happen when hail the size of 
Volkswagen Beetles is going to rain down from the sky. Sounds pretty crazy, huh? And all of this, all of this judgment is intended to make the world right again. It's sad that it has to happen. I don't think God enjoys this. We know that God doesn't enjoy it. God never, it doesn't please him to bring judgment against the wicked. But it must be done. Right? So, next week. (laughs) Next week we're going to look at uh, the next three chapters. 17, 18, and 19. We're going to talk about Babylon. And uh, after we... After we get a description of Babylon, then it starts getting much, much better. Once the sin is rid from the world, Jesus is able to establish his kingdom on earth again. And we will be right by his side. And uh, I'm really excited to share with you about the new heaven and the new earth. This is the best part of the whole Bible, in my opinion what God's final intention is for us. So stay tuned. I encourage you, read ahead on these things. Keep your mind in the things of God. You'll be glad that you do. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this evening as we bring this service to an end and as God speaks to our heart. I think tonight what we can take away from this study is how serious sin really is. We see sin as a weakness as a mistake that we make. We see sin as just a slip-up. But I want to remind you tonight that God hates sin. Sin is cosmic rebellion against the holy God. We thank you again for listening. Do you want to receive updates from our church in your inbox? Make sure to sign up at our website, vbph.org. If this message has been a blessing to you, would you consider supporting our ministry with a generous donation? Please visit our website, vbph.org, and scroll down to find the Give button at the bottom of the page. We would be so grateful for your support. Until next time, love God and love people.